0: A lua inteira agora é manto negro oh, O fim das vozes no radio, Oh radio oh, São quatro ciclos no escuro deserto do céu Quero um machado pra quebrar o gelo oh, Quero acordar o sonho agora mesmo oh, Quero uma chance de tentar viver sem dor Sempre estar lá e ver ele voltar Não era mais o mesmo, mas estava em seu lugar Sempre estar lá e ver ele voltar O tolo tem a noite, como a noite vai temer o fogo Vou chorar sem medo, vou lembrar do tempo De onde vi o mundo azul Lululul.
1: Welcome to The Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo-parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. Happy summer, once again, coming to you from a very summery Tokyo. Uh, we had a little bit of rain earlier, but it's back to uh, the heat hate is on once again uh we're getting up pretty close to 40 yeah these days so um yeah it's like scary but kind of enjoyable i'm gonna have to just enjoy it you know so people are criticizing each other over uh nearly every little thing these days uh including like whether it's communist to eat at restaurants or not but also like the uh, people deciding to just focus on health, personal wellness, uh, in the absence of, uh, active situations where you could really make big change around yourself. Uh, and in that regard, I would really want to emphasize that getting yourself ready, getting yourself together in preparation for any chance that you might get in what any kind of register, you know, I'm not talking about this or that in particular, Uh, but you know what I mean, Uh, the whole range of things that you might do, interventions you might make into the world, you have to be ready. And the people that are, are trying to make those interventions and are actively making those interventions in a very, very negative way, uh, they're out there training every day. They're out here getting stronger, getting more mentally focused and stable. And, uh, yeah, we, we can't, well, we can rest, but we, we gotta, um, we can't sleep on uh the the sort of uh du- duty to uh the world and to ourselves to to be uh together get it together right as an individual as a community reach out to the people that are around you love on them love on each other um where it is you know gonna gonna benefit the most of course too the discernment is is key uh one thing just <laughs> i'm getting way too uh conceptual here though you know. All of that is just, it's, it's probably better to build up from a more uh, practical place. Uh, I'm feeling good anyway, getting lots of vitamin D uh, as I'm recovering from another bout of coronavirus in this big wave in Tokyo. Uh, I did get it, and this time too, uh, camostat, ivermectin, uh, CBD is uh, also, like Forbes and uh, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., even report that CBD in your blood will stop the coronavirus from even entering your lungs and also slow its replication in your body. Uh, so take that to the, um, not the bank, let's let's not use that metaphor, hey? Um, yeah, take it to your body, uh, take it to the take it to the real, take it to the moment, take it to the present. Uh, let's hit that. And, and the polyphenols in green tea and in grape skins uh, there's there's all kinds of stuff about that blueberries, right? Uh, I have lovely uh, little bikini tans on each of my feet from the thongs of my sandals in the in the hot sun, uh, biking around. I use uh, exclusively uh, a bike to get around now. Uh, since coronavirus, I highly recommend that as always. And uh, yeah, just take good care of yourself. I really want to say that. Uh, to start with Uh, another habit cool habit for summer hey try this out drink hot water in hot weather try that it actually can make you feel really cool it can recalibrate your body there also is a beautiful kind of i don't know what it's called but a black rock maybe would it be called obsidian is that it's polished black rock which you can get in japan right i I remember a big source of black rock down by nachi Actually, that's part of that sacred mountain. One of the three sacred mountains of Kumano, um, which, you know, they, you have like Shugendo pilgrimages there, which I have done. And the, this black rock, this pure black rock, um, is used to make all kinds of things. And, and there's a bench made of it, actually. That's what that is. In this one park uh, where I sometimes hang out, and just lying on that on a really hot day, you'd be surprised. You know, I mean, you want to hydrate and everything, but uh, lying on that hot, hot rock and just getting really hot. Uh, this, too, is, is actually a, a kind of um, spiritual training practice, right? I mean, maybe in English you'd say shamanistic or something. You know, I'm thinking of Japanese re- words like shugyo, where you actually just do kind of austerities, right? A certain kind of austerity can involve... Uh, being on hot rocks right and you know, it's similar to sauna effect. Maybe uh, That is lovely But yeah hot water actually hot drinks. I, I gotta say it's actually kind of great. I learned this in China the one summer I spent in China So today what I have for you is a little tour of the Septuagint a little tour of the importance of the Septuagint for Christianity a uh, little, g- revisit my, my TradCath days a little bit, perhaps. Uh, although I didn't, I wasn't aware of this information in, when I was a TradCath. But I just read through, uh, among other things, the, uh, the main source that I will be drawing on today is a book called When God Spoke Greek. The Septuagint and the Making of the Christian Bible by Timothy Michael Law. And it's a lovely scholarly but short and manageable kind of popular summation of all kinds of recent developments in Septuagint studies, which is a very minor field in biblical studies. Uh, And many people, many of my listeners may not know what the Septuagint is. You know, I don't think I really knew hardly even what it was uh, for a long time. Uh, It is the ancient translation of the jewish hebrew scriptures into greek and it was circulating all around the hellenistic world those empires that the kingdoms that resulted from the empire of alexander the great stretching from the mediterranean all the way to the indian world and this lays the the basis for you know in the in the larger context the axial age right you get these ideologies that evolve beyond just having chief chiefdoms uh, and tutelary gods of a given nation into larger empires and these empires under these empires you get much larger more totalizing religious concepts beginning to develop and the great world religions Judaism Christianity a little bit later Islam but uh, also Zoroastrianism and Buddhism and Confucianism. People trace it all the way to and and Menchus, you know, and uh, the other Taoism, the other big uh, ideological mm, movers and grifters. I don't want to say like that. that'd be very negative, but like you know the, the the Warring States period, right? This big period of great breakdown after the Zhou dynasty. In China, and you get these great, many different schools of thought and philosophers coming, going around, and trying to sell their ideas to various princes. Uh, sort of trying to say we can restore the lost unity of China with our good state ideology, and that you can connect that to what Carl uh, Jaspers come, came up with this term, the axial age, and many scholars have written lots of interesting books uh, about it. But basically, uh, very totalizing, very universalist uh, religious concepts and worldviews come into being at this time. You know, we just recently we got into the anthropology and archaeology of the secret society and of trans egalitarian societies. Uh, highly recommend checking that out. I feel like that unlocks so much, and it needs to. I need to go back and revisit everything that I I know with uh, regard to that, with reference to that. I feel uh, but it seems like we start out in social complexity as as sociologists would say or right class society as I've been saying uh, we start out with class society uh, just maybe coming into being a little bit through the accumulation not of capital or of nutrition uh, but the accumulation of uh, sort of honor in the hands of secret societies, which are trans-regional groups, trans-clan groups is the is the key thing, right? Uh, they allow for the consolidation of power, political power of some kind, uh, in hands that are uh, not just a, a clan, a given sort of, clan, right, um, Gens or whatever. Engels uses the term Gens all over uh, the origins of, the family private property and the state which this whole podcast is in some ways a big extension of kind of building on that work right how does class society come into being in the first place right and so yeah we get these uh, secret societies and often they justify their uh, what authority they do have and what rules they do enforce which is limited in most cases Uh, And a lot of the extant cases, again, among indigenous societies uh, seem to be, again, just almost adorably kind of not murderous uh, when you really look at them, right? And, And a lot of the kind of, there's a lot of real negative stereotyping going on in the ethnographic literature because it's all happening in the wake of settler colonialism first reaching these places and these places are just being totally liquidated at the time, and that's also the time that the ethnographers and the anthropologists are coming around under the pay of the mining companies, under the pay of the railroad companies, and they have every incentive to sort of depict uh, these people as, you know, backward savages or whatever, Um, right? But, of course, we know that that's not what's happening in, in a lot of these cases. In a lot of these cases, we actually can see Uh, these are ways to put a brake on the development of class society. We can see we should be just as willing to see a given state as moving in a different direction, right? Just like when we look at an actually existing socialist country, we might see state-owned enterprises. We might see existence of private capital. Uh, All of those facts are, you know, only there's only so much meaning that can be drawn from those facts in themselves. And what you really have to look at, what's the direction that the society is heading in as a whole. And in so many of these indigenous societies, it actually looks like these secret societies are functioning to give so called aggrandizers people who otherwise would like to be Kings or like to be, you know, accumulating say all the resources in a given area. Right. Uh, well this actually makes forces them to dissipate their, uh, dissipate their wealth by sharing it you know in the classically in the potlatch uh they're dissipating their wealth as a show of uh of honor yeah and honor accrues to them but in the end isn't doesn't that sort of read like a an expedient means you know an upaya to use the buddhist term to just like keep them you know reasonably uh keep keep accumulation re- and uh social stratification income inequality whatever reasonably in check uh yeah uh, but the the kinds of deities. This is what I wanted to get to. The kinds of deities and the kinds of religious worldview, maybe that is seen there, is that, you know, they are um, shamans. But this is a kind of privatization of shamanism that you would see earlier. Um, that that is sh- that all people would be pra- practicing this kind of shamanism, and when you get to trans-egalitarianism, the secret society members are the only ones who can control the frightening forces of nature or of, uh, you know, whatever kind of monsters are out there. A lot of time we're talking about basically there are these scary monsters out there and we can use our shamanic powers to keep them at bay and keep the community safe and you need us to do this, right? Well, then... And, and it's, I want to stress, a lot of ethnographers interpret that, oh, this is like ethnographers and maybe like popular ethnography of the 19th century, as would be written by someone like Paul Karus, right? We read a little bit of his demonology book. And he definitely would see that as like, oh, that's the same as worshiping cosmic evil, which is uh, something that comes about in the Axial Age. That's wrong. That's an anachronistic. Uh, I really don't think that these are I- ideas of cosmic evil because there's no idea of cosmic good. You need that duality to come into being. That really comes into being in the Axial Age. That's what I'm trying to get to uh, just for this intro, right? The, yeah, the, the secret societies then go and start naming chiefs and kings and always r- it'll be someone who's actually of a lower, relatively low rank within the secret society becomes, is put out in front as the chief or the king, interestingly, Uh, right, and, but then as the king gets bigger and this state apparatus grows with the early grain state, then we get tutelary sort of ethnic gods, um, god of the, the large, you know, nation, uh, and, those that god tends to be, oh, a nice god, a good god has given us the grain, and this is why you need to work on the grain and spend all of your time growing the grain as a peasant, which is very disadvantageous to you to do. You, you lose all this time. You can't gather other kinds of nutrients that you could otherwise gather, and it's very risky for your diet to be completely dependent on this grain, which if the harvest fails, then you're really, really uh, in trouble, and so on. Uh, but you maybe you believe that this, this good God is has given, right? But still, it's not cosmic good. These gods tend to be just the god of our nation, right? Uh, I think the Japanese uh, idea of Amaterasu, uh, the the sun goddess giving the grain, uh, at least as it's formulated in the uh, by the Edo period, right? Um, you could go in and trace in finer detail exactly which god is supposed to be giving the grain in any given village, in any given time period, right? These things get really synthesized, in the, and that's what I'd be drawing on with my kind of general knowledge of that particular point. Uh, but you get the idea. And the Hebrew god originally was very much along, this, this, along these lines, right? It's not, he's not a, a cosmic good god. He's the god of the Jews themselves uh you know and th- and there's a claim that yeah he maybe he, it was him you know there's all different names right in in the genesis creation account you can see uh vestiges of a more polytheistic outlook right where you know Yahweh ends up being the the god that of the hebrews of the jews um but You know, there are all kinds of maybe other figures. Maybe originally it was like the god that's our ethnic god is like not quite the same god that created the universe maybe because that's what it's more like in other Mesopotamian uh, cosmologies and theodicies. Yeah, you'll see theologies, you can see. Uh, So, but in the Axial Age, yeah, it becomes universalized and it becomes universalized in the medium of the Greek language. This is a really cool thing to realize here. Uh, the Septuagint is the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, and it was circulating in, in Greek among uh, Greek-speaking Jews all across the Mediterranean uh, and Near East. And there was a rich, rich culture of this, and in many, many ways, Christianity really depends on that particular medium. The New Testament writers basically you can conclude the New Testament writers basically can never be proven to have been reading the Hebrew of any given citation that they make of the Hebrew scriptures. And in many, many cases, it's indisputable that they were dealing with specifically Septuagint. Often we know this because not only particular readings and and wordings of phrases and things, but also... Septuagint is also quite different from the Hebrew standard text in interesting ways. And that's for important reason. It's, it, people used to think, and in antiquity also they thought, that this was because of errors that uh, were introduced by the Greek translators. They didn't read the Hebrew correctly or something. But that relies on the assumption that the Hebrew text itself remained unchanged. Oh, it just was... It was really conservative. They never would have changed it, you know. Well, actually, the Septuagint, uh, we can see in many cases, uh, corroborated by Dead Sea Scrolls, finds of Hebrew manuscripts of many of these same texts, that, in fact, the Septuagint translators simply had a variant Hebrew text in front of them, and they translated it very faithfully. Many... Unique Septuagint readings have been corroborated by the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's one of the really thing, things that means a lot about that. Uh, and it's not just the Dead Sea Scrolls. dozens and dozens of manuscripts of Hebrew scriptures from this very early, from the Second Temple period, we'll say. The, simple, the Second Temple period. This is an important uh, distinction. Maybe it's really important to understand sort of the, the history of the Hebrew Bible uh, it may originally have been commissioned by the Persians during that first. Uh, so but then uh, the, the Jews come back to the Holy Land, the temple is b- rebuilt again, and it's during this second temple period uh, that we're talking about. Uh, and that's the time when this Greek milieu is connected, it's connected to this Hellenistic, uh, milieu, which is mixing ideas from Greek philosophy and uh, Iranian, Persian, uh, you know, Zoroastrian ideas, are uh, referenced Egyptian ideas as well. Uh, maybe about like uh, immortality, uh, resurrection would be an important one, trinities, yeah. Uh, we have lots of ideas that, and, and also of, um, Maybe the idea of, like, logos, of the idea of, like, uh, sort of, the kind of thing that maybe, like, like Derrida calls phonologocentrism, perhaps, in an extreme uh, kind of caricatured form, perhaps, right? And it is this Second Temple Judaism that has, begins to have these unique ideas about uh, strong cosmic good and evil, doing good. Uh, According to the Hebrew God, who is the one God who created the universe, uh, doing good according to his commandments is going to put you in line with some cosmic goodness that uh, will ultimately even make you immortal, right? There are many texts in the Septuagint which were included um, not in a bound Bible because, of course, we don't get bound Bibles. This is another important thing to understand about... Um, not only do we now know that the Hebrew uh, text itself, the Hebrew texts of the Jewish scriptures were go- going through a lot of textual change, there were variants uh, at this time, it was. It didn't just, uh, we also know that scripture was circulating in little chunks, you know, there'd be one scroll of this and one scroll of that, and the, there wasn't a super strong idea of canonicity. It was kind of a, a gradient. You know, canonical means like which book is in the Bible and which book is out of the Bible. Which books can we read as sacred scripture and which books can we not read in that way? You know, uh, this was very much in flux still at this time, too. OK. Uh, but this is the time. So this is the time that we get these things. Uh, and... The Hebrew Bible, as it came together, came to be standardized by this. There's one wave in the second to third centuries CE after the sack of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 CE. Yeah, uh, in the year 70, right? You get a terrible cataclysm, of course, uh, and then Judaism is reconstituting itself uh, in in diaspora. After that, and in diaspora only, there's no longer a temple there, right? Before the Second Temple Judaism, the really interesting thing about it is you have, like, a diaspora plus the temple, you know, and you have also a diaspora language of Greek, which is becoming this repository for all kinds of mixture and development of Jewish ideas, you know? uh, it, it contrasts really interestingly. When you think of this, I think it's a beautiful contrast to... Uh, anti-Semitic ideas of Judaism. The anti-Semitic idea of Judaism is the only homeland of the Jewish people is Israel. And when they leave Israel, they, have become, they become degenerate from, from having left their homeland. And that's why they're, you know, whatever. That's, the, that's actually the, the original function of that word degenerate in anti-Semitic discourse. And that is something, by the way, that uh, Zionism, also completely agrees with all along. They completely agree. Yes, the Jewish people don't belong in a diaspora. They cannot be in a diaspora. They must be collected in Israel again. Uh, Otherwise, they will be degenerate. They say these things, the ones who cooperate with the Nazis and try to help, you know, and they cooperate. They they tell them, they cooperate with them in actually causing them to uh, do the Holocaust in some places, right? Calling the Holocaust forces to certain places in uh, Belarus is a big example. Um, a specific Zionist actually specifically suggested that, uh, you know, the Holocaust forces should target certain uh, communities. I know that from a special episode of the Moderate Rebels podcast. It has an episode on this. That's where I'm getting that. So check that out if you'd like uh, but, yeah, that idea of, and I often tell, you know, if I'm telling um, Japanese students about this, I'll sort of say, well, you know, Jewish people have been in Europe since, for 2,000 some years, you know? So, like, how long have Japanese people been in Japan? You know, uh, maybe a solid majority of the sort of genetic, linguistic, cultural variables that make up uh, japanese whatever, might have come in with the Yayoi migrations, and that's maybe... 5 BCE to three three third or fifth century to third century BCE and so you know that's about the same amount of time so does that mean that you know Japanese people are degenerate because they live in Japan and they should be living on the Asian continent where they r- really belong no that's ridiculous uh, and in the same way uh, Jewish people who are from Europe are European and they're entitled to... They're entitled to a homeland in Europe. They w- they should have been given a homeland in Germany. We should have given them the Rhine Valley. We should have given them. You know, um, it's it's a great tragedy, uh, right? That this this logic of racial purification actually is about getting them out of there, right? Uh, Subliminal Jihad just recently did a great series on Liberia, and that's a similar move. They're taking black people out of the United States and getting them to do settler colonialism in their own right in Africa, right? And this is the exact, you know, we'd have to really make sure, uh, you know, one thing that I would really love to see as uh, currently it is the uh, anniversary of the so-called hikiage, as they say here in Japan, uh, the, the end of the war, right? So we've just had the anniversary of the end of the war. That's August 15th, I think. And... The what follows after that is the hikiage, the pulling up. They call it. Uh, it's the a tremendous kind of exodus where people had a lot of hardships, and there was all kinds of chaos in the wake of the um, end of the Japanese Empire. The Japanese Empire was being broken up, and and settler they were doing settler colonialism. So right, all of those colonists and settlers that were out on the frontier in so-called manchuria northeast china had to now somehow get home to japan you know and many of them were actually maybe born in korea but they had citizenship in japan so maybe some went to japan some went to korea uh it's all very complicated some ended up with cit- citizenship here or citizenship there right north Korean, south korean citizenship uh th- The Japanese government itself, under American direction, made a large number of people completely stateless and didn't allow them to travel internationally. Uh, This was, yeah, this it's a super complicated, interesting topic there. Uh, The work of Barack Kushner, he's a a scholar that deals with that. Uh, So I would refer you there. That's super interesting. Um, But, you know, this is what we would be looking at. It occurs to me, uh, maybe... I would love to be a pioneer of the de-pioneering, the hikiage um, of America. You know, and, and that's what land back would really mean. Right? And there were people who stayed behind. Uh, I'd forget if i it's nagging at me. I wonder if I properly mentioned last time Imamura Eiji, the author of the very collaborationist kind of Korean weeb uh, story, uh, he disappeared in the, at the end of the war. And nobody knows what happened to him. Maybe he was killed, but maybe he just stayed behind. Like a lot of other people, he could have stayed behind, right? And that's something that you could also do, you know? I mean, I think if um, this is the way that fellow uh, aspiring former settlers like myself, this is the way that we should think about land back, right? You're, you're going to have a new regime uh, that's going to be centered around indigenous people and black people, and the, the members of the vanguard, right, the real working class that will be uh, the ones, the only ones that would really be able to lead uh, a truly new, the creation of a truly new system in, say, a Turtle Island, uh, for example, uh, you know, you, you would just be under, and it would be much like, uh, you know, you're a colonist in colonial Manchuria, and when Japan loses the war, you can stay behind, you can join the uh, Chinese Communist Party's new uh, society there. You can join the North Korean society. You can join, right? There are new societies being built. You can join those. You can go someplace else, right? It's going to be, well, it's not always up to, it wasn't always up to these people what they did, actually, right? Because it it depended on luck whether you got on this or that boat or on this or that truck or whatever going uh, wherever you wanted to go. But, yeah, hikiage. It would be interesting to think about land back as hikiage of america um america getting you know pulled out inshallah but it occurs to me you know in thinking about liberia in thinking about israel Zionism, right we would have to be real careful that uh it isn't some fake thing you know that some somebody might the ruling class might tell us hey this is land back we're giving you land back and And then just do a Liberia, and then just do uh, uh, Israel, you know, Um, and that would not be, right, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about uh, the People's Republic of New Africa, or we talk about uh, land back, get back to, you know, it has to be uh, a socialist, a socialist uh, government, it has to be social, we have to be building socialism, moving toward a stateless, classless society, that's the only thing that is really going to uh, save us from climate change, right? And it's the only thing, and, and it happens to be the thing that uh, particularly indigenous people will be our elders in creating, and they know, they have you know, a lot of wisdom for, for creating these things. So uh, you know, if I had the chance to be part of the construction of a post-hikiage, Uh, Turtle Island society, I would jump at the chance myself, right, and, you know, nobody that I am following is uh, saying any, uh, saying that they want to do anything like the kind of white genocide or whatever that, you know, somebody might be, um, reactionaries might be imagining, because that's just projecting the desires of white people, the desires of settlers onto uh, indigenous people, and new Africans who d- do not want these things um, in and of themselves, although they can be made to, you know, so we've got to, yeah, we've got to be careful. Um, speaking of which, uh, from, from Red Nation, uh, Comrade Zik Kato is, uh, I see, in need of some emergency funding. The current crisis is obviously hitting everyone, right? If you have a little extra, uh, feel free to, to unsubscribe to me. Uh, go ahead, kick a little bit in Zit Kato's direction. They are a host of Bands of Turtle Island. You may remember Um, Bands of Turtle Island. They largely do some really nice kind of parapolitical podcasting under a series in Red Nation that is called the Yodid series, right? And that's that use of that term Yodid, like like high on peyote to mean sort of things that are crazy and kind of out there. Uh, But... Yeah, they do just a great series there, and they're highly worthy of your support. Um, they have a Patreon Patreon called Zikatos Tin Can Z I T K A T O. Boom, chucka,
0: boom, chuck, boom, chucka, boom, chuck, boom, chucka, boom, chuck, boom. Glory to God in the highest. Beep, beeps to His people on earth. Ba-ba-dum, ba-ba-dum. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy
1: on us. But so Second Temple Judaism is just full of tremendous uh, intellectual and spiritual ferment. Uh, There's just all kinds of interesting new ideas being brought into Judaism from things like Greek philosophy, Egyptian, Persian sources, right? And you can see that especially maybe in what are called the Deuterocanonicals. This is a part of the Hebrew Bible that was excised from the later sort of um, Maserat, first of all, you know. Uh, and this is the really cool thing to realize, okay? There's this big disconnect and it the ultimate mm, perpetrator of this uh, shift, one of the biggest figures in this shift is Jerome, who's the translator of the Vulgate. Uh, that's a new translation in Latin of the. Uh, Bible the entire Bible but also the Hebrew Bible from the Hebrew that was his big thing he after getting kicked out of his home diocese for uh, scandals including getting me too'd uh, or the equivalent right uh, pretty hard he went to Bethlehem and he set up in Bethlehem a little uh, hermitage or whatever a little spiritual community and translated from Hebrew this was his big thing you know and Um, ever since then, the, the Christian, Christians have drawn on the Hebrew Bible primarily for their Old Testament text, even though the New Testament writers uh, can nowhere be proven to be relying on Hebrew and to have even, um, read the Hebrew scriptures, uh, they are always drawing on Greek, and very often they're drawing on unique Septuagint readings, right? Which, as I mentioned, are not necessarily unattested in Hebrew. It just means that they're different from the Hebrew as it got decided later on in the 2nd and 3rd centuries CE. And the Masorah that we know today is really a medieval production of medieval rabbis, you know, 6th, 7th centuries or something, right? Much later, much later. Um but since Jerome, it became customary to draw on the Hebrew, right? And the, the New Testament is in Greek, and the Old Testament is in Hebrew, is what we think, right? Um, now, this has, you know, we were talking about anti-Semitism earlier. There's a different kind of anti-Semitism than the modern kind of Nazi one. Uh, maybe it's different. It's at least different in that, uh, so in Spain, okay, in uh, Renaissance Spain, that's just uh, this big world historical moment where the Jews and the Muslims are driven out of Al-Andalus and this new Christian kingdom of Spain is formed and ethnically cleansed and culturally uh, hom- homogenized. And the, the few, uh, you know, at first there's a kind of liberal integrationism that is, that is preached and uh, Jews and Muslims convert to Christianity, and continue living, but then there's even more sort of, oh, you got to change your customs, and then uh, eventually they get actively oppressed, and there's revolts of Moriscos, right? I think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but uh, the key thing is that there were debates uh, about the Bible, obviously, even then, too, sort of, are we going to continue relying on the Vulgate, Uh, and they decide to continue relying on the Vulgate at the Council of Trent, right? Um, And a lot of people don't really get, I also didn't, I think it's very seldom probably really understood what the alternative would have been, right? And, you know, one alternative would be, yeah, you do a, a new translation from the Hebrew, from better Hebrew manuscripts that we now have, thanks to the Renaissance, thanks really to the Age of Exploration, and, bringing in all kinds of pillage and plunder from both the Americas and Africa and from uh, the Near East now that all those capital networks are all connected and they have as their hub now Europe suddenly for the first time in world history, right? This is the time of the birth of whiteness. This is the time of the birth of settler colonialism, right? Uh, All of these important things. So what's the alternative to the Vulgate? Well, one would be, okay, new uh, translation from the Hebrew into uh, Latin. That's what people normally think of. Actually, though, uh, there are all these guys, you know, I, I happen to be studying uh, a certain scholar named uh, Luis de Leon, who got in, thrown in the uh, prison by the Inquisition for publishing a bible that was drawing on the the tabla bible that that was kind of renewing the the latin translation against the hebrew and so on uh and his but his opponents though they were accusing him of being influenced by jews and conversos and hidden at which uh there were plenty of one of the main things that conversos did was become priests and especially in the new religious orders like the jesuits there's a whole book called uh, "The Jesuit Order as a Synagogue of Jews," on Brill, and that goes into this this tendency, right? Uh, and that included many of the missionaries who came to Japan in the late medieval, early modern mission, you know. So that's inter- a whole interesting. That opens up all kinds of interesting considerations, actually. Uh, But so, Luis de Leon was not uh, Jewish or converso, as far as anyone knows, uh, but he was accused of this by people, by his main rival, actually, was a guy who was really into the Septuagint and saying, we should go back to the Septuagint. Um, And his reason for doing that was to get, you know, because it's untainted by the uh, Jewishness of the Hebrew, right? So, he had an anti-Semitic reason for this. Um, That's not, uh, I have no sympathy for that, but... uh, It is undeniable that so many of these ideas of Second Temple Judaism only come into being in Greek. They only come into being often in these deuterocanonical books of the Old Testament, right, which are, even today, right, they are only found in Catholic and and, uh, Eastern Orthodox Bibles. Um, The Protestant Bibles have excised those uh, because many of them, you know, are demonstrably... uh, not well, they come from a later period right than the the three main divisions of uh, law, prophets, and writings yeah uh, it's like another division and uh, and they're not found in the rabbinical uh, Maserah. they're not found in the in the te- official Jewish text of the Hebrew Bible, and so therefore Protestants got rid of them however, uh the New Testament is full of uh, allusions to specifically those books. Specifically, those books have a lot of Greek thought in them. They have a lot of different ideas that were current in Second Temple Judaism and that are crucial to specific, unique uh, facets of Christianity, right? Uh, These would include the the most important books for New Testament writers would be Sirach, uh, or Ben Sirach, The Wisdom of Solomon, and Tobit, and Second Maccabees. There are four books of Maccabees, right? There's two extra books of Esdras. Uh, There is Enoch. First Enoch is going to be really important. Um, There are three books of Enoch that are known, but First Enoch is directly quoted by the book of Jude, the letter of Jude, in the New Testament, okay? Even though it's not even in the Deuterocanonicals for Catholics and Orthodox, uh, it is in the uh, Bible of the Ethiopic Church. The Ethiopic Church does have uh, the book of Enoch, and that's super important in its own right in a big way because that's the only place where you'll find... The idea of angels and demons in the world being sort of, and, and the idea of the devil has like taken over this world, and you know, there's an idea of like cosmic evil, right? All of that is not found in the Hebrew Bible proper. Uh, it, some of it, there are allusions to some of it in the Deuterocanonicals, and uh, only in 1st Enoch does it really get spelled out this idea of like sons of God as found in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, sort of, you know, B'nai Elohim, right? Um, the um, B'nai, as opposed to like benay Nashim, uh, right? Like sons of uh, sons of man, yeah. So um, you know that means like the kind of the the race of the right the gods. So it's kind of like minor gods of some kind in a in a Jewish register uh, come down into the world and they. Uh, m- Marry with human women, and they give birth to giants, races of giants, and so on. you know, there's like one line about that in in Genesis, right? but it gets d- developed much further in Enoch, and the letter of Jude, which is canonical in the New Testament for every kind of Christian, uh, directly quotes Enoch by name. It says Enoch writes this, you know uh, and so you know, isn't that interesting anyway? um that's that's a huge thing because that's the only place where that stuff is spelled out which otherwise is taken as doctrine by uh all kinds of christians you know uh and in this sense you know i think um that's that's where i think i'm going to title this uh, this episode uh um deuteronormativity uh which i guess i'm playing on heteronormativity right like which is a bad thing uh but uh here maybe i'm I'm arguing for something like deuteronormativity. If you're going to um if you're gonna be a Christian, uh maybe you do have to like recognize the the crucial genetic sort of dependency of the New Te- of New Testament thought on these deuterocanonical books, uh, right? And not least of which is Enoch, which is only canonical for Ethiopic uh Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. Yeah. Uh, so this, this whole topic has got me revisiting my tradcath past, and I'm also realizing, oh, I think this is probably why a whole lot of the real hardcore Tradcasts that I used to know, a lot of, a big percentage of them become Eastern Orthodox at a certain point. And maybe that's why. Maybe converting, I, I bet that's what it was, because I'm, I'm getting it now. I'm understanding, okay? Uh, so I'm going to take you through Let's go. Uh, Here we go. So uh, the famous prologue of the Gospel of John, the discourse about the divine logos, it shares many similarities with, if not outright dependence on, the wisdom of Solomon. There's all kinds of stuff about, you know, uh, obedience of God and being personified into something called wisdom. You know, that contains the the statement like, God did not make death. God did not make death. So human beings are not originally meant to die right, and the only reason why we're mortal is because we have sin, Uh, all these things, this is not in the Hebrew Bible, yeah, Um, and if you, conversely, if you don't sin, maybe you can attain eternal life, which is an idea that comes from Egyptian uh, religions, right, Um, this is part of the brew that is leading to, to Christianity, okay, um, and the, what about the title "the Son of Man" as used in the Gospels? Right, that too really depends on it being in Greek, and it depends on the Hebrew Scriptures also being in Greek. It come, you know, people will say it comes from the Book of Daniel seven thirteen to 816 to eighteen, uh, but in fact, this is only partially true. The Son of Man in the Gospels has been developed from both Daniel and the Book of Parables from First Enoch thirty seven to seventy one. It's striking to discover the same language in both 1st Enoch and in the Gospels. Before the sun and the signs were created, before the stars of the heaven were made, his name was named before the Lord of Spirits. That's 1st Enoch 48, 3. And uh, from the beginning the Son of Man was hidden, and the Most High preserved him in the presence of his might and revealed him to the elect ones. 1st Enoch 62, 7. The Son of Man passage in the Gospel of Matthew, that's 25:31 to 46, concerning the sheep and the goats, speaks of the Son of Man sitting on the throne of his glory, which is a feature found at least three times in 1 Enoch, 61:8, 62:2, 62, 2, and 69, 27. And the whole parable shows similarities to the book of parables of 1 Enoch. There may also be a relation to 2 Esdras, which is the, the fourth Ezra book. Where we find the Messiah, quote, whom the Most High has kept until the end of days, who will arise from the offspring of David. That's 12.32. Right? Uh In Paul as well, he talks about uh, a humanity without excuse. You know, you had no excuse not to recognize the, the creator of the world, right? You can see the order of the world and all of that. Uh, and then you can realize that there is a God. Um, that's Romans 1:18 to 32. This passage is, as many commentators have recognized, very similar to Wisdom of Solomon 13:1 through 19 and 14:22 to 31. So the apostle undoubtedly knows the apocryphal work, but here we see more significantly that Paul's own thought was shaped by it. A striking example is Romans 1:20 20 to 23 where Paul says that humans did not recognize God from the works of his hands because they were foolish, this is also found in Wisdom 13.1, for all human beings who were ignorant of God were foolish by nature, and from the good things that are seen, they were unable to know the one who is, nor, though paying attention to his works, did they recognize the craftsman. Surely we've all heard the Argument for the existence of God from the you know the universe being complex and obeying laws It's like a watch. It's like which actually that metaphor for the watch uh, arises perhaps in Islam Uh, That's huge in Islam. Okay, and that's part of the whole story of sort of Islamic science not getting the credit that it's due uh, Right in inspiring Renaissance science when Europe again sort of the, the great Arivist of history, sort of takes control of Islamic capital networks and uh, plunders the American and African continents. It uh, also takes this great wealth of Islamic uh, science and the scientific worldview, which in some ways is inherent in Islam. With the focus on praying five times a day facing Mecca, you need a clock. Um, you don't need it, but you, you would really... People prefer to have a very accurate clock uh, to pray at exactly the right time, and they want to find accurate measurements of direction so that they can pray facing Mecca exactly. And that becomes a stimulus that uh, stimulates a lot of geographical knowledge and chronological, chronographic knowledge. Yeah, and, the, and a whole worldview of the universe itself as being a great clock, which God has uh, made according to recognizable, reasonable principles that our minds can understand. You know that that feature of the Christian worldview, supposedly, that is so often cited, um, or maybe Judeo-Christian, you know, uh, worldview that is so often cited as being the thing that leads to science and modernity and technology and all of this. You know, which is believed even in 19th century Japan, for example. This is huge in Japan. Like, oh, how can we be modern and have science without something like Christianity? Because everyone knows that uh, you need the Christian worldview of a reasonable, uh, orderly universe created by a uh, reasonable God, you know, who has wisdom and logos and, and, you know, uh, Sophia. Yeah. So where does that come from? That comes from this Greek Jewish literature, right? This, which is not part of the um, proto-canon. It's deuterocanonical here. Uh, Jude 9 is a huge uh, smoking gun, as I mentioned earlier. Jude 9, it, not only does it quote uh, First Enoch by name, Uh, It also tells of a dispute over the body of Moses. This is like, you know, it's like something from the Iliad or something, you know. When someone dies in the Iliad, the fellow warriors all come and they're trying to, like, recover the body, and there will be battles over that. Uh, Well, there is a tradition in a pseudepigraphical work called The Assumption of Moses, which is even more minor, uh, where uh, the angel Michael is a grave digger, and he's, like, trying to get the body of Moses And there's a fight then uh, between angels and demons over the body of of Moses, keeping it on earth versus uh, assuming it into heaven, okay? And and so in Jude, um, Jude 9, uh, but when the archangel Michael contended with the devil and disputed about the body of Moses, he did not dare to bring a condemnation of slander against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And that phrase, "The Lord rebuke you" comes from an even different place um zechariah three two it's a different prophet um yeah, so isn't that wild And you can see and then here's the Enoch, right um Jude directly quotes, And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodly committed, and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's First Enoch chapter 1, verse 9. And it's quoted in Jude 14-15. to 15. You can find it. There are questions about sort of how did the New Testament writers experience these scriptures, right? And I've already told, I've already said, you know, they certainly were broken up. Uh, The individual books, right, uh, would be probably the main way, right? That's what law argues, that that's the main way. One other theory is the testimonia hypothesis, that there were sort of testimonium collections, which we have found... Uh, collections like this in among the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran in the caves there. Uh, those are caves used probably by an Essene sect of kind of millenarian sort of, um, you know, sort of a branch sect that's kind of critical of the main uh, religion of, of Temple Judaism, Second Temple Judaism. But uh, they had testimonia. So a testimonium would be a collection of scripture citations on a certain topic, so this is a thing that existed. Um, however, the law argues, I think convincingly, from as far as I know, that uh, the New Testament writers show way too much knowledge of the context at all times of all the texts that they cite for this to be plausible. But there are people who have suggested, oh, maybe they were just using testimonia uh, because there is a testimonium which collects all kinds of citations from the hebrew scriptures uh, including the deuterocanonicals that they think are prophecies of the messiah that's another big topic right the idea of a messiah there's going to be a messiah and right they're going to save us from the cosmic evil power right on behalf of the cosmic good power Uh, but there were testimonies like that yeah um However, yeah, I would tend to, I guess I agree with law that probably there's too much knowledge of uh, context there to assume that they were just using Testimonia. But uh, we do find plenty, plenty um, dependent on, uh, specifically anyway, the Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, in, for example, we the word evangelion, the word uh, gospel right, the good news, right, that is a word that doesn't correspond to anything in the Hebrew of Isaiah, okay, that's in the Greek of Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger, Um, this in the Hebrew, okay, in the Hebrew it says that how beautiful are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So in the Greek Septuagint, this is like season upon the mountains, like the feet of one bringing glad tidings, and that's evangelion, right? Of a report of peace, like one bringing glad tidings, right? That's from the, it's it's a form of the verb evangelo, so to give good news, right? Um, bringing glad tidings of good things, because I will make your salvation heard, saying to Zion, your God shall reign, and so on. Um, you need to have that verb, evangelion, which is not, you know, again, you know, that's a dynamic translation from the Hebrew is, is introducing that word, right? Um, yeah, so Mark's, Mark's concept of evangelion was definitely rooted in the Greek Isaiah. The concept of the glory of God as it is developed in the New Testament has roots in the Septuagint, especially the book of Isaiah, right the idea that uh, right isn't that i mean it's when you think about it it's not an obvious idea and it's not something that is particularly in the hebrew scriptures god's glory is enhanced by you doing no god is the god of israel he's the god of your nation okay and you have to obey him because he's the god of your nation not not particularly any other reason right um, yes his commandments are good for you and and he, they will lead you to uh, a good life. Uh, I'm sure most people believe, right? Uh but you know ultimately he's the god of Israel. That's the important thing, you know. Um Shema Israel. Israel Eloheinu Echad, right? The the god our god is one. He's our god, right? That's the important thing. And he's the only one. There's no no other one. Okay? That's what's important. It's not glory of God. You know, we want everyone to know about God and everyone to, yeah. That that's not an idea. That's that is an idea that is from the Greek world. It's a Hellenistic idea, um, yeah. So also the virgin, right? The uh, the idea of virgin, born of a virgin, uh, is not in the Hebrew. There's no you know Hebrew word in Isaiah seven fourteen, is just Alma, which Alma means a, a young girl. It doesn't. There's nothing about virginity versus not, right? Um, but the the prophecy in Matthew one twenty three, as he cites it, is "Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us." That comes directly from the Septuagint, using the word "parthenos," which which specifically means a virgin, and that's why the whole prophecy of the virgin birth sort of makes lot of sense if you didn't if you just had the Hebrew it's not particularly like where where does that come from why is that important right uh you know J- Japan incidentally is another culture that um does not have a huge like linguistic level distinction about virginity uh and maybe even less than uh ancient Jewish culture I wouldn't know th- about that point but um yeah definitely not a huge deal. The the Portuguese missionary L- Luis Froish mentions this in his Contre de Saunas, um His comparison of uh, Japanese and European culture. He says that you know virginity is not considered an important thing. Um, you know, very poor parents will um, put their daughters into the sex trade and get some money, and then after that, they can marry her off to a nice husband and. Nobody thinks that her value as a wife has been diminished by being in the sex trade, okay? Um, but yeah, in Greek, they, they have this, this distinction. Uh, another huge case, uh, kurios, Lord, referring to Jesus, right? All through the Septuagint, kurios is the translation for Yahweh, right? Uh, in English Bibles, that would be wherever it says the Lord in all caps, capital L-O-R-D. Um, the Septuagint is using kurios, Uh, That's the sort of unpronounceable, untranslatable name of God, which we can, uh, uh, people sometimes, of course, provisionally pronounce it Yahweh, right? Um, If in Hebrew you would say Hashem, which means the name, uh, or you can say Adonai, which means my Lord, right? Adon, but Adon just means like mister in modern Hebrew, for example. Modern Hebrew, you just say Adon. Maybe we would imagine, you know, in Jesus' Aramaic, maybe that would be Adonah. Um, for, you know, mister. Uh, Maybe that's what they really would have been saying to him that gets then recorded in the Gospels as kurios. But recording that as kurios allows you to then look back at all the Hebrew scriptures and every time you see the word kurios, you think Jesus, 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 right? Uh, Another word is Christos. Christos is merely the Greek translation of Mashiach, the Anointed One, Uh, which translate to English as Messiah, right? Also, or not translate, but transliterate. We could, you know, it's obviously a loan word in English, Messiah, Um, right? So, but then, again, the Septuagint uses the word Christos in all different places, right? Uh, Like Amos 4.13 says, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it says God reveals his thoughts to mortals, but the Septuagint, has, uh, again, possibly based on a a variant Hebrew tradition, announces his anointed to humans, his anointed. So that would be translated Christos, okay? So then, okay, that's a prophecy of Jesus. That goes in the list of prophecies of Jesus, and that becomes part of the text, the tissue of textual citations that sort of establishes, oh yeah, that whole it was a secret layer that was present in the Hebrew Bible all along that God actually, uh, first of all, was not just one he had a triune structure the Trinity, right? He has the you know, Jesus is present from all eternity Uh, and then of course all of these citations become the object of all kinds of scrutiny later with the Christological controversies. These are sort of the controversies trying to establish the nature of the Trinity, the nature of Jesus. Uh, what is his particular, uh, you know, is he fully God, fully man? Uh, was he, is he only, did he only seem to be a man and he was just really God, the whole, uh, only a God the whole time? Uh, was he, uh, did he exist from all eternity or was he created by God at some point? And people would cite all kinds of little passages where just a couple words of like, you know, um, God says, I made you to his servant or something or right. And then, you know, and, and it'll depend on a, a pr- real particular kind of Septuagint reading that has, you know, God said to my Lord and things like this. Right. Another really cool uh, dependency of the New Testament on the um Deuterocanonicals is the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, in Luke one forty six to fifty five, and the Benedictus, that's the Song of Zechariah, in again Luke one sixty eight to seventy nine. Um, the description of Mary as blessed above all other women on earth follows exactly the language of Judith thirteen eighteen. Judith is one of the Deuterocanonical books. The authors of the New Testament were clearly reading them as scripture, not just early Christians like the authors of the New Testament, okay, right. Uh, Also, the proclamation of peace brought by the coming of Jesus, Luke 2.14, Simeon declares that he can die, he's happy to die now, once he has laid eyes on the baby Jesus, and that's exactly the words that Anna says when she sees Tobit in Tobit 11.9, again, deuterocanonicals. A trajetória
0: escapou, risco nu, uuuh, as nuvens queimam o céu na no rixa azul, uuuh, desculpa, estranho, elvo mais puro do céu. Na lua lá do escuro é sempre igual, ah, ah, na espaço a solidão é solidão e ma, ah, ah, desculpa, estranho, elvo tem mais puro do céu. Sempre está lá e ver la voltar, No ela mais o mesmo, mas está estava em seu lugar. Sempre está lá e ver la voltar, o tolo tem a noite, como a noite vai temer o fogo, vou chorar sem medo, vou lembrar do tempo, de onde eu vi o mundo azul.
1: And now, hey, let's move into discussing the Hebrew scriptures as they actually appear in the New Testament in quotations themselves, right? Not just talking about the dependence on Deuterocanonicals which is interesting too, uh, the Gospels present Jesus teaching, even though, you know, his native language was Aramaic, and we can presume, and sometimes they make a show of saying, you know, he used this word, like, Talitha Koum, you know, which means get up, girl, in Aramaic. Like, they make a point of stressing, oh, he's speaking Aramaic, right? But we're writing in Greek. Uh, nevertheless, when he quotes the scriptures, it's the Greek-Jewish scriptures, now, he might, Jesus, the real historical Jesus might well have spoken Greek at a conversational level. Uh, that's yet another way in which Mel Gibson's uh, movie, what the hell, uh, the Passion of the Christ is, is off, is that uh, the Romans are all speaking Latin, which the imperial authorities and the rulers of that area were speaking Greek. They didn't speak Latin. Latin didn't penetrate nearly that low on in the hierarchy, first of all, right? And, uh, you know, plenty of the time, Jesus, well, he's he's depicted speaking some Latin when he talks to, like, Pontius Pilate, right? Okay. Well, he would have spoken, yeah, but he would have spoken Greek, and he, he would have spoken some Greek, maybe. Um, I don't know. But there is also the possibility that actually, you know, Jesus in Palestine— would have been reading the Bible in Hebrew, but the writers of the New Testament, writing you know, late 1st century at the earliest, are reading in Greek. They don't read the Hebrew the way that Jesus did. So even when they tell a story about Jesus, you know, they're, they're putting in the, the Greek version, and many times the interpretation that is given there depends on it being the Greek version like Mark 7, 6 through 7, okay? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. So that last part, in vain do they worship me, uh, that comes directly from the Septuagint of Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, right? Uh, in vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts and teachings. Uh, the Hebrew just says their worship of me is a human commandment, learned by rote. Not in vain do they do it. It's learned by rote would be the equivalent phrase in the Hebrew. So again, it's coming from the Greek. Uh, Luke four seventeen to eighteen, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Now here we actually have uh, the very end there. Recovery of sight to the blind and letting the oppressed go free. These two things are uh, respectively found in the Hebrew and in the Septuagint, but not both in each, right? The Septuagint has recovery of sight to the blind, and the Hebrew has released to the prisoners. Jesus says both. In John 123, when John the Baptist, I think, says, uh, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Well, Isaiah 43, uh, that phrasing agrees with the Septuagint, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God, but not the Hebrew. Uh, in the wilderness prepare. The way of the Lord makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, it's not a direct quotation of the Hebrew. Again, the Acts of the Apostles, 15, 16 to 18. Uh, we have uh, these statements of like, you know, we're opening up salvation to all the nations of the world and not just Israel. And in fact, that was the intention all along. Secretly, the Hebrew scriptures are all about uh, first of all, this triune God who has a son, and secretly they also were intended for all of humanity and not just uh, the Jews. There's this universal vision, um, which is very nice, right? A universal vision of salvation and, and uh, liberation uh, is a wonderful thing that I want to trace in history, and I want to celebrate the birth of this in history, right? Because this is something that I also believe in. Uh, even if I don't really consider myself a, uh, a Christian or even a, a, an Abrahamist of any kind, right? Uh, nevertheless, this is an important moment in the history of class struggle and paleo-parapolitics. We have this moment where the idea of all humanity being saved from, uh, if anything, you know, these forces of class uh, domination and oppression and evil, okay? And that's wonderful, all right? But, you know, and what I'm pointing out here, this is dependent upon a big Greek uh, diaspora. It's dependent on these particular historical circumstances, right? And it's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. So James is saying, James is is saying at the council of Jerusalem, this agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Well, the Hebrew there, it says, you know, we'll set it up. In order that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Not all the nations. Uh, not all the Gentiles, right? Um, over whom my name has been called. It is all the nations who are called by my name. That means all the parts of, uh, you know, Israel. Uh, it doesn't mean everyone. Uh, but th- how do you get there? How do you get that? You, from the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, in Amos, this is Amos nine eleven through 12, Right On that day I will raise up the tent of David that is fallen and rebuild its ruins and raise up its destruction and rebuild it as in the days of old in order that those remaining of humans and all the nations upon whom my name has been called might seek out me. So that, that phrase, all the nations there, is being interpreted as all the Gentiles in Acts. Okay. Again, Romans, uh, we get into Paul, right? Uh, Romans 2.24, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's criticizing the Jews of his time for not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, right? And he's, he's quoting, what is he quoting here? You can't find, he's actually quoting Isaiah 52.5, um, which in the Hebrew doesn't really say. Now, therefore, what am I doing here, says the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away without cause? Their rulers howl. The The rulers of my people, I think, right, says the Lord. And continually, all day long, my name is despised. It's not particularly like because of you, right? But in the Septuagint, in the Greek, it says, because of you, my name is continually blasphemed among the nations. You have that quotation there. So, again, Paul needs it to be, he needs that, that Greek, All right. in Romans 9, 33, he says, as it is written, see, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, now this idea that of a foundation stone, and then also that foundation stone is a stumbling block, a stum- something that people will trip over, is an innovation of Paul's, he's adding that tripping part, Um, as a sort of metaphor for, again, uh, the Jews who do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, uh, because they're making a mistake, i.e. tripping, right? Uh, But where does this phrasing come from? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, right? Uh, In the Hebrew, it just says, See, I am laying in Zion a foundation stone, etc. One who trusts will not panic. Now, who is trusting, or what are you trusting? You're probably just trusting God, right? Uh, It's not particularly, the foundation stone is Jesus, God the Son, as distinct from God the Father, and so on, as you would have in Paul. How does he get there? Well, Septuagint has, you know, Cornerstone, uh, and the one who believes in him, i.e. in it, right? Uh, The word for him, the word for it are the same as in many... uh, indo-european languages right like uh spanish or something right or, or german you know you would say er or z or s you would say er or z uh for masculine or feminine nouns uh even if they're inanimate right which literally translated that would be he she yeah so that's important to keep in mind um that's from that's from isaiah twenty-eight sixteen is the Old Testament citation there, in Romans 10, 20 to 21. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul, again, he's in interjecting, of Israel he says this, and then this bit about, I shown, I, sh- I have shown myself, right, Uh, that's about the Gentiles for Paul. Uh, Well, what's in Isaiah 65, 1 through 2? In the Hebrew, there is nothing about showing myself. Okay? It's just, I was ready to be sought out. It's just basically like, I'm waiting for the people of Israel to come to me, and they're not, and I welcome them whenever they want to. It really doesn't say, like, the Gentiles. Nothing. Uh, But... In the Septuagint, you do at least have this phrase, I became visible to those who were not seeking me. And you could read that and say, oh, this is about uh, you know the expansion of God's covenant to include all the people of the world. Okay. Uh, Romans 14.11 As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Um, the Hebrew only has every tongue shall swear. It's not particularly acknowledging God. And again, we get maybe the, the glory of God kind of idea, too. Uh, Septuagint has every tongue shall acknowledge God. So there, the object of that verb is very much. Um, and the specific nature of, of swearing, you know, every tongue shall swear. What is, what is happening here? Um, it's about sort of pledging allegiance to God, to the God of Israel, who is now being expanded to be the God of all humanity, right? Uh, In Romans 15.11, Paul cites the Greek from Deuteronomy 32.43, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him, in a string of citations. This Septuagint text of Deuteronomy 32.43 is from an additional part not found in the Hebrew. Be glad, O nations, with his people, and let all the angels of God prevail for him. That's what the Septuagint actually says, and that bit is not in uh, the Maserah, it's not in the medieval Jewish text. It may have been in a Jewish text, a Hebrew text, right, that was actually uh, uh, translated by the Septuagint translators into Greek, okay? Um, you have similar thing. Uh, Isaiah 11.10 is used in Romans 15.12, uh, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. That is nowhere to be found in the Hebrew Isaiah, but it's in the Greek. Sometimes Paul actually seems to be quoting from not maybe the oldest layer of the Septuagint, but a later uh, revision, a version that is later identified as a revision by someone named Theodosian. So it's called the Theodosian text of the Septuagint, Uh, right? And he quotes uh, in 1 Corinthians 1554, when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, Then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where does this phrase come from? Well, the Hebrew says, uh, in in Isaiah 25, 8, the Hebrew says, he will swallow up death forever. Okay, we're we're missing victory, right? The older Septuagint has death having prevailed, swallowed them up. So that that actually uh, reverses it, doesn't it? and then Theodosian has, precisely, death has been swallowed up in victory. Word for word, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So, he's quoting from a very specific um, Septuagint text. Uh, we go beyond Paul, the author of Hebrews, which, who is anonymous, um, Hebrews 11.21, the writer quotes from the Septuagint, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the top of his staff, instead of what the writer of Genesis forty-seven thirty-one intended to say. Uh, in the Hebrew it says, And he said, Swear to me, and he swore to him, Then Israel, uh, that's Jacob, bowed himself on the head of his bed, not his staff, the top of his staff. So this is either a mistranslation or a variant text, which is being preserved in the Septuagint and there you go. It appears in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. Uh, also, the idea of rest in Hebrews is very important. Uh, theological concept, you get rest by believing in God uh, and going to have this part of, like, salvation, right? Um, but that depends on a formulation in Greek, not Hebrew. Uh, so he, he borrows this concept from Psalm 95 and from Genesis 2-2, Right, talking about in Genesis, it's about God is, is resting after creation, right? Um, the Hebrew for terms for rest in Psalm 95:11 and in Genesis 2:2 are different from one another. so the reader would not have made the connection if he were reading from the Hebrew alone. In Greek, however, the same word is used for rest. And therefore uh, this theo- Christian theological concept of rest is born which covers both of these, these instances. In Hebrews uh, 4, 3 through 5, For we have, who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, In my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest, though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says, They shall not enter my rest. Okay. So that's connecting two things that are not connected in the Hebrew. In Hebrews ten, five through seven, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. That that sounds like the incarnation of Christ, right? Christ came into the world. But in Psalm 46 through eight. In Hebrew, you have, uh, you have given me an open ear. Literally, you have dug out an ear for me in the Hebrew. And the Septuagint that we have faithfully translates that, ears you fashioned for me. Okay, not a body. And so what scholars say is, well, body is the oldest. Septuagint reading, maybe. It's an older reading that has not been attested in any extant manuscript, but it must have been there somewhere. And that's how it found its way into Hebrews. The Psalms, by the way, are also quoted indirectly by the author of Revelations. You have in Revelations eleven, fifteen, and 18, and also Acts 4, 25 through 26... Uh, this phrase, the rage of the nations and the Lord and his anointed, or Christos, uh, those are taken right from the Greek Psalter, uh, right? Psalm 2, 1 through 2, okay? Uh, the writer is not through with Psalm 2, however. He also writes in Revelation two twenty six to 27, 12, 5, and nineteen fifteen, that one will come who will rule with an iron rod. We were the, This is the name of the Rod of Iron, the um, sub-church of the Unification Church or the Moon Organization, right? Sean Moon, the the sort of lower son, maybe he's like the eighth son of Moon uh, Sun-myung, perhaps. Uh, he founded this church, which is known uh, in Japan, again, by the term sanctuary. But in America, where it is associated with the machine gun cult, uh, it's called rod of iron, because they're interpreting rod of iron as being, this is machine guns, right? Uh, well, isn't it interesting to realize this phrase, rod of iron, uh, comes from the Septuagint, and it it depends, its use in the New Testament is dependent on uh, some vicissitudes of the Septuagint text, and some ambiguity, too. Uh, Psalm 2, 8 through 9, "'Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession.'" You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that's what the Hebrew says, uh, but the Greek, tra- the translator has either misunderstood this verb or is reading a manuscript with a slight variant, which looks very similar in Hebrew to the verb for rule, yeah, because he is saying rule with a rod of iron, not smash, okay, so smash or rule, this, these are two different you know, variants. Okay. So the conclusion that we can come to from all of this is that most, if not all, of the citations in the New Testament are not in any way strictly dependent on the Hebrew. And in those cases where they appear to be close to the Hebrew, a Greek revision can just as easily provide an explanation. Indeed, you could extend to the entire New Testament. What has been proven in a study on Romans that there is no instance in which the hypothesis that Paul used a Greek text does not account for the data more simply or more satisfactorily than the supposition that Paul employed Hebrew and or Aramaic texts. So the Greek language is an essential ingredient, Uh, not only the Greek language, but the, the Hellenistic world, the Hellenistic synthesis of all human thought that was available to people in that uh world was a, a key ingredient. That was the key sort of um that's the the bed from which uh the the plant that we know as Christianity grows. And uh it's a real interesting chain of events after that, which this book also goes through, different church fathers who move more and further and further away from the Septuagint until finally there's this big total embrace of the Hebrew that we have today. You know, even today, if you go th- to seminary, you want to be a pastor or something, yeah, you got to learn Greek, you got to learn Hebrew. You, you, if you want to know what the Old Testament really means, you have to approach the Hebrew. And for a lot of churches the books that may or may not have ever had a Hebrew version, the deuterocanonicals, are definitely out, even though those are some of the most distinctively uh, proto-Christian parts of the uh, Second Temple, the heritage of Second Temple Judaism. And there's a whole lot of new scholarship out now. You know, there's, there's different commentaries on all of these texts from Second Temple Judaism. And... Um, You should check those out. I really recommend. You know, there's new editions. New manuscripts have been found of, uh, like, Second Enoch used to be only extant in Slavonic version, but now there is a maybe Aramaic. There are Aramaic fragments that are starting to come out and be collated. So we can learn more about those, Uh, you know. Isn't it interesting that sort of, like, these core ideas, core assumptions that, like, uh, there's cosmic good and cosmic evil, and like the devil it has sort of like temporarily taken over this world, but our whole job is to like demonstrate allegiance to the cosmic good God, even even though our world is ruled by the evil, and then the cosmic good God will maybe send a savior, a messiah to us, and at the end of the world, in, in any case uh, it's all going to be set right, and God will reward. Uh, obedience to the good, and so on, and everyone will be uh, liberated, you know, either, either uh, right now by believing in faith, or at the end of the world, or both, right? I think most Orthodox Christianity comes to, to say that it's both, um, both now, both right now, and not yet, at the end of the world is when it really gets, comes to completion, uh, but that whole worldview is really not laid out, in the Hebrew Bible, this is Second Temple Judaism, and it really is most clearly laid out in the Deuterocanonical books, right? Of the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, and even some that are not uh, in there, like the like Enoch. You know, First Enoch is at least canonical for Ethiopic Orthodox Christians, right? Um, and that one is that's pretty crucial. You know, that's quoted by name by the Letter of Jude as we saw. Um, And again, yeah, what do we have today? We have this interesting kind of mismatch between a Hebrew Bible that was finalized by medieval rabbis and a New Testament that was written by people who were reading the Septuagint in all of its variant readings of earlier Hebrew that doesn't necessarily agree. You know, you, you do find... Uh, In the modern English translations, they do go back to the Septuagint again, and they sometimes will go with a Septuagint reading when they think that it's more... uh, when they think it's clearly older, and we're more faithful, or it makes more sense. You know, there are many places where the Masorah, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew, is clearly corrupt. It's clearly corrupt. You know, even if you believe uh, that it somehow didn't change at all, and there weren't variations in the Hebrew tradition uh, from Jesus' time all the way to the uh, medieval rabbis that produced the the Maserah. Uh, you can't deny that there are lots of corrupt passages that nobody alive knows how to read in places like, oh, Job is full of, full of these, uh, right? And in a place like that, if you go to the Septuagint, you can you see oh there is a reading that makes sense and they were they had a text that said this anyway right and that's what they that's what they put all right um finally i will leave you with a a, a final uh example of dependence on not any extant greek text that we have um but clearly dependence on a a clear, just very, uh, well, you might say misreading. I don't want to say misreading, but like a very idiosyncratic reading of the text of Isaiah, okay? Um, We're talking about this passage, and I know of this, ironically, from the letter to Pamachius of St. Jerome. St. Jerome was the the one who put the last nail in the coffin of the Septuagint in the West, uh, in Latin Christendom anyway. Uh, And and in that, he had Augustine of Hippo as a debate, an opponent in the debate. Augustine of Hippo actually defended the Septuagint and the Old Latin, uh, which is a translation from the Septuagint into Latin, right? Against Jerome's new uh, Vulgate at least for a while. So Augustine eventually sort of like accepts. He he gives in to Jerome ultimately. Um but it's so ironic that this <laughs> this comes from there. As you'll see in a moment, um I don't cuz I can't we we have to think in a moment like what could Jerome have meant by introducing this uh as a way of like bolstering his authority because that's what he was doing in that letter. Um so we have the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2 Verse 23 Kai Elthon Katoke Sen Espolin Legomenen Nazareth, Hopos Pleirote to Reten Diaton Propheton, Hoti Nazoraios Klethesitai. And going they arrived to the city which is called Nazareth, uh, in which way it was fulfilled the saying through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarean. Where can you find a prophecy in the Old Testament that the Messiah will be an, a Nazarene, i.e. born in the town of Nazareth? You cannot find any such thing. What you can find in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 1, and that goes, hoter Migeza goes, and that means a shoot, like a new sprout, will come up from the stump of Jesse, right? a Hebrew ancestor. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And this, is, this does sound like a prophecy of the Messiah, but wh- how do we get Nazoraios from that? Uh, well, it's this word netzer. If you look at the Peshitta, the Syriac translation of the New Testament, which is, uh, you know, the basis of Syriac Christianity. Syriac is a dialect of Aramaic, so it's a Semitic language, right? And this is the earliest Semitic translation of the New Testament scriptures. Uh, Definitely a translation. This is not the source of the the Greek or anything. But we have there at the end of Matthew chapter 2... Uh, the same statement, right? They go to the town of Nazrath, is the name of the town there. And he will be called uh, Natsraya. And it's, it's Nun Tzadi Resh in the Syriac. So indeed, that's Netzer. That's the same letters as Netzer in the Hebrew, right? Which means a, a branch will bear fruit, not uh, a Nazarean will bear fruit. Right, that's not. Uh but somebody read it that way, uh right? Someone the author of the Gospel of Matthew is clearly drawing on a tradition that that reads it in this way, okay? Uh as Nazarene. So right there you have you have this translation milieu, you have this and, and in many cases mistranslation. Uh with this, with knowing this, I don't think there's any way that you could believe in what they might call like the inerrancy of scripture. Like every word that's in scripture is just absolutely true, and so on, and the, its interpretation is even fixed and, and knowable to all at all times, and this sort of thing. No, no, you gotta, you're got you gonna have to have like a real mu- much more nuanced uh, kind of view of all that. Uh, but at any rate, you know, this is the the complex moment. It's from the Hellenistic synthesis. It's from the Greek language. It's from all of this translation uh, activity that this comes into being. Um, and why should, why should Jerome be the one telling us this? His, his, the, the conclusion that he wants us to draw from that, raising that example, is just like, oh, it's all just mystery. It's all sacred mystery. No one can understand it anyway, so just forget about it. This <laughs> is kind of his uh, attitude in the letter to Pamachius. Um, which I guess that serves his purpose. He wants to say we should go with the Hebrew. There's, there's a perceived kind of weakness because all along, and especially in Palestine, Christians will be in dialogue with Jews, uh, and they are going to have a, a real inferiority complex about, you know, the first thing they're going to be criticized for is like, this doesn't say, the Hebrew doesn't say that. That's just the Greek that says that, so you're wrong, is what they were told, right? Um, and it, yeah, if you, uh, and it's understandable why they sort of really felt uh, convicted by that, as you might say in Christian speak. So ultimately, in the West anyway, they get rid of the the Greek, they get rid of the the Septuagint, right, and, and deal with the Hebrew directly. Uh, but that that makes all kinds of things not match up. All of these tra- these um, quotations of uh, the Old Testament in the New Testament now no longer match up if you you go from the Hebrew. So that's this important moment. In the Hellenistic synthesis, in the diaspora, in the Greek-speaking Jewish world with all its complexity, that's where it was born, right? I think I've proposed earlier too we should maybe think about the Hellenistic synthesis being repeated in the 60s and 70s in a kind of California synthesis. Uh, somewhat artificially, perhaps somewhat, you know, in a planned way that we should be a little suspicious of. Uh, documents like the uh, differing visions of man or, or something, right? This idea, already then, they're sort of seeing the end of capitalism and what will, and plans, which I think will ultimately involve evolve into... Um, transhumanism, or whatever, right? Whatever that, or, or techno-feudalism, some people say. I myself think maybe even techno-trans-egalitarianism is an even better description of what they're aiming for. Uh, there was a new synthesis in, in California that, that sort of also is taking things all together and combining all these ideas in uh, really particular ways in the English language, right? We can look at that as a parallel case. Uh, but in any case... Yeah, this, this religion is coming into being, and all its concepts and all its worldview uh, live and breathe Greek uh, Hellenistic uh, air at the same time that they are uh, completely uh, and authentically Jewish, right? This is a Jewish diaspora, Greek-speaking diaspora, and all the complexity and all the beauty that that entails, and as I was saying earlier, you know, for our sort of broader sweep of the history of class struggle, this is an important moment of, of birth of an idea of universal salvation, universal liberation, right? And we can still, I myself, uh, sort of feel a great debt to that and draw inspiration from that, even if not literally, uh, I don't literally hope for quite the, the kind of um, eschatology that is preached by Christianity or anything. Uh, but I think that idea is an important idea, and it's part of human uh, humanity unfolding its destiny and the idea of being born of overthrowing class society and undoing uh, the very real changes that have indeed happened, you know, because class oppression, class society did come into being uh, gradually, but at a certain point in history. It has a history And it can have a history of overthrow going forward, uh, right? We can move onward, use all of our technology, all of our traditions, all of our wisdom and all of our love to produce a world that is uh, classless and therefore stateless and therefore uh, extremely peaceful and extremely happy. And it's for very important steps taken toward the birth of that idea that I'm very thankful to the writers of the New Testament. I'm Fergal Schmudlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation.
0: Nova lamentar que pasó, pasó, e bora embora mel tempo Tenho muita coisa para descobrir Eu sinto muito, mas tenho que ir Vou pro mundo porque nada Mas me aprendo aqui é O final do show e não fico magoada porque vou partir Eu sou um jeito que so- Que ch lá Vem meu trem, vem meu trem, tô saindo fora porque vou me dar bem, te changes lá, vem meu trem, vem meu trem, sei que tá na hora, vou me dar bem, sempre em frente, nunca pra trás. Sempre enfrent, euh, nunca protrache.